Hello everyone, it's Anzac Day Eve in Australia and I thought to commemorate the date, I'd re-release one of the most popular episodes on the Speak Ola podcast. It is my chat with Don Watson. It was episode 12 of the podcast. It's had over 2,500 downloads and I thought that given it is the most important commemorative date on the Australian calendar, it'd be a good idea to put Don Watson's great chat back out there. This was actually a series of conversations with Don. I also spoke to him about the Redfern speech. That's the previous episode, episode 11. But I'm going to put that audio up again of the Unknown Soldier speech. And it's been quite significant in Australia. We've had the video released for the first time of Paul Keating delivering the Unknown Soldier speech in 1993, I think it was actually Remembrance Day and not Anzac Day, but it's fantastic vision. For so long it had just been audio up on YouTube, but now on YouTube and on Speak Ollie, you can look at the video in bed and see the speech being delivered in the moment, and it's quite something. Thank you to everyone who's become a subscriber in recent times at Speak Ola. There's different ways to do it. You can do it at Patreon, patreon.com forward slash Speakola. But perhaps the easiest way and the way that most people are contributing in recent times, you can go to news.speakola.com. That's the newsletter. I've been pretty prolific putting out regular updates, put out one for Barry Humphreys this week, the death of the great Australian comedian. Uh, he's got a speech up on Speakola. The one I grabbed is his National Press Club address in 1978 when he toured Australia he gave a speech called Through the Thin End of an Asparagus Roll. Very funny speech. Haven't got audio for that one, but the transcript is up at Speakola if you look it up. And I'll put the show notes, I'll put a link in the show notes as well. So that is the sort of thing that I'll write as a newsletter, just alerting people to interesting speeches and speech techniques as well. News.speakola.com. And this is, I guess, where you can choose to be generous. Uh, the thing that keeps Speakola going, that makes it something other than a hobby and more of a job, is if you contribute. And it's $50 a year or $5 a month to become a paid-up Speakola subscriber. News.speakola.com
shall fight on the beaches, we shall fight on the landing grounds, we shall fight in the fields. If you lay down with dogs, you get fleas. Fraud, sham, and hypocrisy. Change within the system. The hollow man of anger and bitterness all must be left to a bygone age. I understand victory! I understand sacrifice! Speak over. I may not get there with you. That we as a people will get to the promised land. Speak over. Well, may we say, God save the Queen. Because nothing will save the government yet. Speak over. With Tony Wilson. Well, today is the 11th of November, and it's the anniversary of a, of a very famous Australian speech, Paul Keating's speech at the interment of the remains of the unknown soldier at the Canberra War Memorial in 1993. I spoke to Don Watson at length for the last episode about the Redfern speech and the general life of a political speechwriter, and we're not going to talk about all those things today, but we are going to just quickly touch on the unknown soldier speech. Hi, Don. Tony, how are you? Can you remember the lead up to this one? What were what was going on? Yeah, it has an interesting context because the um, the idea for the interment of the, the the people in charge of the war memorial at the time were Brendan Kelson and um, not Brendan Nelson, Brendan Kelson and Michael McKernan, and they, as far as I understand it, were behind the whole idea of r- returning to Australia and interring the remains of a soldier whose remains had been dug out of the battlefields of France or Belgium. And at the time, because of Paul's attitude to the Republic and the monarchy, um, he wasn't popular with the RSL. And the RSL, we were told, at one point, were very hostile to the idea of Paul actually delivering the speech. Anyway, Kelson and McKernan, you know, (coughs) overcame this challenge and Paul delivered the speech but there was a you know there was this political undercurrent how dare this man who's a republican and put his hand on the back of the queen or something be doing it they just didn't like him one bit anyway the speech was done the first a draft of the speech was done by Michael McKernan which I read and I think it was probably in that draft that the opening line of the speech began. We will never know who this man was. Um, I think that's how it begins. We do not know this Australian's name and we never will. All right, yeah. Um, yes, well, I can't remember. I know my, Michael wrote the thing. I redrafted it in Melbourne, gave it to Paul. It contained a line, a bit of an ambit claim, as is often the case, about the, uh, the rather poor generalship on the Western Front which Paul said we better take that out mate and uh, I don't think there were many more changes to it and uh, away we went and it was you know it was a, it was a nice speech I, I also remember Michael corrected I, there were a couple two or three whoms in there which I think Michael corrected his grammar was better than mine <laughs> um, so it goes into we don't know who this person is and then it goes into uh, what we do know kind of a reflection back a nice little device yet he has always been among those those whom we have honoured that might have been one of the whoms you're talking about yeah Yeah, I've been conscious of whom ever since no it was it was it was interesting because 
on two counts. One is it sort of, it was beyond reproach. Jeff Blaney, who was very combative in those days, he, he refused to see anything good coming out of him. But he actually said, you know, it was, it was a pretty good speech, although it shouldn't have said that he criticised it for saying that we didn't know his religion, you know, whether he had a God at all, because he, you know, 90% of Australians said they were Christian or something at the time. I thought it was a bit ridiculous. That doesn't necessarily mean that they believed in God. And why shouldn't we atheists get a Guernsey anyway? But the the other thing that was curious about it was that the Keating government coincided with the anniversary of all these battles. It, it's, it's, it's 92 to 96. Well, yeah. that's the war, right? So he made a lot of speeches about the war. Everywhere we went, there was a war grave somewhere that had to have a speech made. So the 50-year ones, the World War Two ones. Yeah. World War Two ones. Then then there was this World War One. then we went and saw the battlefields in France, and he made speeches there. And But people would say, when I came home at a weekend, why is he making so many bloody speeches about the war? And you say, well, have a look at the calendar. So the, the interment of the unknown soldier was one of many speeches about the war. But I guess what was different was to, to try and find something fresh in the Anzac legend that couldn't just be reduced to platitudes. So instead of asking, instead of repeating the platitudes of Anzac Day, lest we forget and all they know he was a brave man and all that sort of stuff, you ask what we lost through the war and then what we gained. And what we gained is the legend. But I think before you get to the legend, you hope you've put enough bones on what we've lost to see how important the legend is and, for that matter, how fragile it is as well. And the other thing about what we've lost is is when you start asking that question, you start you, you make it concrete, which is the most important thing in language, is to make it concrete. People never respond to abstract language. They respond to the concrete. So if you say what we've lost and you include in those things like is love for the country. You take 60,000 lives, add another 120 of people who are crippled in one way or another. There's an awful lot of very powerful feeling that is lost as well as what's lost in the nature of their work or their genius or whatever. So that's, I don't know, I haven't read it for many years, but if you, if you, um, I imagine that's what the speech did was to try and make concrete something as unconcrete as a as a legend. It certainly did that. And it, and it did one more thing, which is to ask an audience in 1993 to just be there for a moment. Again, empathy. And, and the line that I think rings down through the decades now is that one that he is all of them and he is one of us. Um, yes, it's funny that because it used to get mocked around the office. Greg Turnbull used to <laughs> do variations on his all of them and one of us. But um, yeah, that was the point, I suppose. I have some reservations, you know, about Anzac. Yeah. Well, there, there, there's a little bit of that in the speech. I mean, there's certainly a a, a paragraph that's talking about glorification of war and you know that could have been amplified even further you know mm. that and, and i think there's a there's a wonderful war speech by clive james that he gave at battersea i think in 1988 um when they were doing something for australian airmen who served with the raf 
And, you know, that's a really powerful statement of mm. of what this did to certain classes of Australians. And, mm. um, yeah, so you obviously felt that. Oh, yeah. You know, there's a... There's a um, well, I, my, my grandfather fought in it and the, the repercussions of his fighting in it were felt in our family until my father died and probably beyond. Um, you know, still there's stuff in the National Archives about him that I, I don't think anyone knew. It's, only, you know, it's just a very basic few pages, just the official um, record of his service and it grows more complex as you think about it. But, um, you know, it had, it had a, uh, I think, a tremendously debilitating effect on the country. You know, it divided the country between those who fought and those who didn't. Um, it created a kind of cast of old warriors to run the country, which was still operating when I went to university in the 60s, you know. People in very powerful positions, your war record mattered a lot, and it did colour the way they thought, you know. There's a very telling thing that Menzies says when the troops are in the Middle East, and he wants to bring them home. It's before he's rolled, and Curtin brings them home. And Menzies complains about the fact that these old soldiers keep mad about Britain and want to <laughs> don't want to offend at all. You, you do get a kind of RSL cast who have um, become the most you know effective right wing lobby in Australia, and it changes the way we see the world. You know, for that matter, it gives rise to a communist party which didn't do us any good either. Certainly didn't lab, didn't do the Labor Party any good. It nearly splits the country over conscription. And on top of that, you know, you have these people who are treated abominably when they come home while being made heroes. You know, the VC winners are selling soap around the streets of St Kilda in the, in the Depression. Blokes who've gone through hell are stuck on impossible small holdings as soldier settlers, which my grandfather was. It's an appalling period. And that's even before you get to what it what the war itself involved to be at the front either the western front or the eastern front or anywhere else it's a horrendous period i think greatest podcast i've ever heard i'll come in here with uh, blueprint to armageddon by dan carlin 17 hours of the western front uh, really? <laughs> after that <laughs> yeah, no. it isn't too good yeah and it doesn't though. get any better i mean and the resolution of it all is you know basically guarantees the next one yeah um which is even worse so that's what I had. That's the trouble with Anzac, <laughs> for me. That people go there and you know they just. In a way, the the um, unknown soldier speech triggered this, not the speech, but the moment. It got great publicity. I mean, it was from about that moment that the sort of Anzac was reborn, in a big way, and I, I don't think it's all been for the good. For a start, the War Memorial is now sort of a hodgepodge of kitsch and sound effects and rooms sponsored by armaments manufacturers and it's a bloody disgrace it was such a beautiful simple monument and it's being destroyed but it also sort of leads people you know you would think that Australia basically won the first world war single-handed and even the concentration on the Australians involvement in the first world war tends to obscure the fact that there were millions of lives lost elsewhere you know 
we lost 60,000, you know, Italy lost close to a million, Russia lost God knows how many million, and so on and so on. I'm not sure that the legend always does us proud, frankly. I guess that's one of the things of being a, a Prime Minister speechwriter. You, a lot of your own views just get put in your back pocket. Well, you, I suppose that's right. I mean, there's no never room in a speech to, to write the history of the First World War or any other, but, it, but it, again, you know, you try and not go the easy path of the cliché or the, or the simple summary or the, the platitude. You, you know, you have some sort of responsibility to at least leave room for doubt, recognising that life is more complex than a platitude ever makes it. I mentioned that Redfern didn't look like a performance piece in terms of the acoustics. The The Unknown Soldier speech does look like a performance piece. It's, it's a Prime Minister in good lighting, kind of on the top of his game, well rehearsed, that sort of thing. Yeah, I don't know whether it was well rehearsed, but <laughs> he wasn't big on rehearsal. Um, but he, um, yeah, it was a it was a setup for that. I imagine there were a few people in the front rows from the opposition benches who were hoping for it to be a disaster. But um, it, uh, I think, even John Howard said something kind about it, even about Paul's, you know, delivery. But that, you know, in a way, that for a speechwriter, that that sort of thing is a is a kind of gift. You know, it is a it's a big kind of moment speech. <laughs> got an emotional heart he's got an emotional heart you know in a funny way i remember almost as well a, a little speech in the in a back room of in a, in a theater in the war memorial with some old veterans of milton bay and dame beryl beaurepaire there paul always loved people like dame beryl beaurepaire and it was only you know it was a speech to maybe 50 or 60 blokes and their wives 50 or 60 altogether about milton bay and in a funny way, it was, it was very, it was more affecting because it was sort of intimate and I don't remember anything about it at all, but I remember these old blokes being sort of moved. Would that have been written, that one, or was that Paul yeah, Ostrakoff? It was written. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a beautiful speech. I, I, the Unknown Soldier speech, every time I put it out there on Speakola, it's always people come back with, this is the greatest speech in Australian history. Some people very much have that love for it. it. I think it's a really emotional experience to listen to it. And it's a combination of, you know, great writing and great delivery. So so we'll play it in a moment. Um, Don, thanks a lot for talking about it. There's one thing I should mention about it. Somebody wrote to me about three years ago and said, when you mentioned, Austra- you know, you talk about Australian soldiers, sailors, and you didn't mention the airmen. You didn't mention the, the people who flew those horrible little planes around. Why not? And I thought, I just forgot. <laughs> and it, it's there. It's sitting up there, you know, it's engraved on the wall of the War Memorial. And no one thought to say, what about the blokes in the planes? And there were quite a lot of them. And they've been left out, which just goes to show that, you know, the serendipity. I would like to go up there and chisel their, you know, little upside down airmen at the top uh, I'm sure there's regrets for everyone. You can never get it perfect on the night. No, that's the thing about all writing. You go back and you think, God, how did I let that creep through? That's a mistake. How did I phrase that like that? What a mess. 
Well, there aren't too many mistakes in the Unknown Soldier speech, and I'm going to play it in a moment. Thanks a lot, Don, for, for sharing your memories of it. Thanks, Tony. The best. Well, he really does have the knack, doesn't he? Don Watson, who's written many books about language and how there's been a deterioration of the language, it feels as though words just fall out of him and there's a silken formation and it speaks directly to you and there's a perfect combination of storytelling and opinion and it really has been a pleasure these last two episodes. I think they've been right up there amongst the best for this podcast. So thank you so much, Don Watson. Don's actually working on a book about war at the moment. I believe his next title is going to be related to the life of a Vietnam War veteran. Keep your eyes out for that. And as I mentioned most episodes, I write books as well. You can purchase one at tonywilson.com.au or on Booktopia. One you can get from me is The Minister for Traffic Lights. The Minister for Traffic Lights loves traffic lights and he also hates road rage and he thinks of a way of curing road rage. He invents the mauve traffic light. When the lights turn mauve, you have to get out of your car and hug your fellow motorist. It's a story of love. It's a story of mauve. And uh, if you want to get a copy, contact me, tony at tonywilson.com.au, $20 plus postage. It's not a long episode this week, and it's not a long speech either. Six minutes and 23 seconds, but six minutes of some of the best oratory that has been delivered by a Prime Minister in this country. So let's play it. Paul Keating's 1993 Remembrance Day speech, the eulogy for the unknown soldier. We do not know this Australian's name, and we never will. We do not know his rank or his battalion. We do not know where he was born or precisely how and when he died. We do not know where in Australia he had made his home or when he left it for the battlefields of Europe. We do not know his age or his circumstances, whether he was from the city or the bush, what occupation he left to become a soldier, what religion, if he had a religion, if he was married or single. We do not know who loved him or whom he loved. If he had children, we do not know who they are. His family is lost to us as he was lost to them. We will never know who this Australian was. Yet he has always been among those we've honoured. We do know that he was one of the 45,000 Australians who died on the Western Front, one of the 416,000 Australians who volunteered for service in the First World War, one of the 324,000 Australians who served overseas in that war, and one of the 60,000 Australians who died on foreign soil, one of the 100,000 Australians who have died in wars this century. He is all of them and he's one of us. This Australia and the Australia he knew are like foreign countries. The tide of events since he died has been so dramatic 
so vast and all-consuming, a world has been created beyond the reach of his imagination. He may have been one of those who believed the Great War would be an adventure too grand to miss. He may have felt that he would never live down the shame of not going. But the chances are that he went for no other reason than he believed it was his duty, the duty he owed his country and his king. Because the Great War was a mad, brutal, awful struggle distinguished more often than not by military and political incompetence, because the waste of human life was so terrible that some said victory was scarcely discernible from defeat, and because the war, which was supposed to end all wars in fact, sowed the seeds of a second, even more terrible war, we might think that this unknown soldier died in vain. But in honouring our war dead, as we always have, we declare that this is not true. For out of the war came a lesson which transcended the horror and tragedy and the inexcusable folly. It was a lesson about ordinary people, and the lesson was that they were not ordinary. On all sides, they were the heroes of that war, not the generals and the politicians, but the soldiers and sailors and nurses, those who taught us to endure hardship, show courage, to be bold as well as resilient, to believe in ourselves, to stick together. The unknown Australian soldier we inter today was one of those who by his deeds proved that real nobility and grandeur belongs not to empires and to nations, but to the people on whom they, in the last resort, always depend. That is surely at the heart of the Anzac story, the Australian legend which emerged from the law. It's not a legend, it's a legend not of sweeping military victories so much as triumphs against the odds of courage and ingenuity in adversity. It is a legend of free and independent spirits whose discipline derived less from military formalities and customs than from the bonds of mateship and the demands of necessity. It is a democratic tradition, the tradition in which Australians have gone to war ever since. This unknown Australian is not interred here to glorify war over peace or to assert a soldier's character above a civilian's or one race or one nation or one religion above another or men above women or the war in which he fought and died above any other war or of one generation above any that has or will come later. The unknown soldier honours the memory of all those men and women who laid down their lives for Australia. His tomb is a reminder of what we've lost in war and what we have gained. We've lost more than 100,000 lives and with them all their love of this country and all their hope and energy. But we've gained a legend, a story of bravery and sacrifice and with it a deeper faith in ourselves and our democracy and a deeper understanding of what it means to be Australian. It's not too much to hope, therefore, that this unknown Australian soldier might continue to serve his country, 
he might enshrine a nation's love of peace and remind us that in the sacrifice of the men and women whose names are recorded here, there is faith enough for all of us. Thank you for listening to this little part B to the Don Watson interview of last week. Thank you, Don Watson. I've had such lovely feedback on the previous episode. I think you have the knack of allowing us to peer into a world that a lot of us wondered about, uh, the Keating years, a fascination to many progressives of my generation. And it's been just great hearing so much about it. Thank you to Declan Fay, North Fitzroy Co-op Fathers Unite. Declan helped me with some of the background work on these two episodes. Thank you to Greenskin and Purple Skin Avocados. The continued support is appreciated. Thank you for listening to the podcast and for spreading the word. Tag us at speakola underscore on Twitter if you've got a nice thing to say or if you haven't, give us some feedback. Until next time, see you later. Speak up.